0: Well, as uh, you met me a minute ago, my name's Luke, and I'm one of the pastors, and uh, excited to be able to, to work through God's Word with you today. I was amazed at Mark, how he remembered all those kids' names. I barely remember my own kids' names, uh, but he, he his uh, his love for the families of our church and the kids of our church, his ability to remember people's names is just Staggering and spectacular, and I'm encouraged uh, a lot by his ministry. Um, He's actually dedicating uh, his newest daughter at 10:45, so we're going to do a little swap, and that'll be uh, that'll be fun. Well, listen, today is it. It's the last sermon in the Book of Romans, and uh, I still don't know how to interpret that clapping. That was from my daughter; she's really excited for it to be over. Um, But uh, a lot's happened. We we started the series April 7th, 2013. Uh, Took some breaks here and there, but that's about 18 months if you're doing the math on it. Um, And a lot has happened in the world since we started Romans. I thought it would be just sort of fun to take a look back, Uh, especially since we just did child dedications. Did you know that there were over 6.4 million babies born in the United States of America since we started Romans? That's a very good birth rate. I think we contributed significantly to that as a church. And and in fact, uh, researchers have determined that the cutest one is a four-month-old that goes to Gateway. (laughs) And uh, so that's pretty exciting. But a lot else has happened in the world. Let's just take a little trip down, uh, down memory lane or amnesia lane, whichever you think about it as. Um, April 13th, uh, or April of 2013 was the Boston Marathon bombing. Soon after that was the Edward Snowden and the NSA leaks that happened. In June of 2013, the Supreme Court struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. That paved the way for 25 states that have adopted same-sex marriage since we've started the Book of Romans and even since we taught on Romans 1. In July of 2013, George Zimmerman was acquitted in the death of Trayvon Martin, and there was obviously a lot of controversy and interest in that. Also, Mohamed Morsi was overthrown in Egypt, so we kind of expand across the world. Uh, Chemical weapons were found in Syria in August. Uh, In October, uh, the government shut down, or some of you call it the good old days. Uh, The government shut down. Also in October 2013, uh, healthcare.gov was launched, which was kind of an interesting experience for everybody. December of 2013, Nelson Mandela passed, and he was a beloved figure, obviously, around the world. Then in February of 2014, uh, evil triumphed. As the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Also was the uh, Winter Olympics. I'd forgotten uh, totally about the Winter Olympics that I'd spent basically three whole weeks watching this every night, but uh, sure enough, that happened early this year. Um, There was also the crisis in, uh, oh, wait, Donald Sterling. This wasn't really that big of a crisis, but he was banned from the NBA. It was obviously a big cultural issue. Uh, Next was the um, uh, Malaysian plane that disappeared in April 2014. You remember that? Uh, That was kind of a, I don't know, does anyone, some of you conspiracy theorists will tell me afterward where that is. Um, We also then had uh, the uh, Hobby Lobby winning in the Supreme Court in June of 2014. And that was kind of a big thing for religious freedom and allowing it so that Christian companies wouldn't have to uh, fund abortive Uh, Medication and things like that. Uh, We also had ISIS declare uh, an Islamic state in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, That was just this summer. Amazing that when we started this series, ISIS was something no one had ever heard of, Uh, and yet what influence and strength they seem to have at this point in the world. There's also been the war between Israel and uh, the Palestinians that seems to never quite end, Um, and then all kinds of tension in Ferguson, Missouri over the death of Michael Brown, and we're still kind of waiting to see what will happen there and. How will that begin to be resolved? A lot of us were uh, really saddened when we heard about Robin Williams. We heard about his passing. And uh, if you watch a movie with him in it, you'll still continue to grieve over that. Uh, Then uh, just uh, last month, the U.S. launched airstrikes uh, against ISIS in October 2014. And then the the big news that Mark Andrus made sure that I had to include was uh, that also in October 2014, uh, Taylor Swift released her latest album. So, uh, so, so a lot's happened, hasn't it? And as you look at that, and you look at all that stuff, and there are plenty of things. I mean, I'm sure you might come and say, "Oh man, you left this out, or you forgot this," and that's entirely likely. But as you think about those world events, I don't know about you, but there's something in me that makes me long for a place with no pain and no suffering, and no war, and no strife, and no racial injustice, and no suicide. Don't you long for that? I do. We all do. I think there's something in the human spirit that longs for that. And, and, and that day is going to come when Jesus returns. And so I, with that, I just want to kind of use that as an opportunity to remember all that's happened over these last 18 months, but also to invite you, uh, join us next week as we uh, start a new series, an Advent series called Return of the King. We're going to look at the second coming of Jesus, and we're going to look at how he begins to undo the mess uh, that is our world, and all the things that, that we just looked at. Uh, but today, we're finishing Romans, and uh, uh, Mark read for us this doxology, uh, this conclusion of the book of Romans. Uh, let's just take a look at it again, and then I want to take a, 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 some time to kind of look back and go, why is Paul so excited about how he concludes this? Uh, this doxology, that just means a word of praise, a, a, a kind of song, if you will. Here's how he concludes, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And notice there are three according to's that are going to follow this. Three ways that we're strengthened. How are we strengthened? We're strengthened according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. And according to the command of the eternal God. To bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul uses some really sort of big, important sounding words and phrases here, doesn't he? Right? We're strengthened according to his gospel. The preaching of Jesus Christ. The revelation of a mystery that was kept secret for for many ages. It's now been revealed. The, e- the command of the eternal God. Paul here is not just uh, sending off the Romans with a blessing. He's not just praising God for all that he's done. But he's also, in a sense there, summarizing all that he's said. And so what I want to do uh, for really the balance of our sermon is I want to go back through the book of Romans, and it took us 66 weeks to teach it. We'll teach the whole thing today in about 30 minutes, and we're going to just go back and take a look because uh, some of you weren't here when it started, uh, and, and some of you were, and either way, this kind of will help you see how it is that Paul here is, is building up to such um, an exclamation of praise. Praise. So uh, before, we, before we do that, let me uh, just pause and, and pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we've learned here in this book. And God, I pray that even as we go quickly through it, that you would bring some things to mind and seal some of these lessons deeply into our hearts. Help us to live differently because of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want you, if you have your Bible, turn all the way back to Romans chapter 1. We're going to go verse by verse. All the, no, not really. Uh, what we've done here, what I've done is I, I've kind of tried to come up with like a summary statement for each uh, chapter of the book of Romans. If you're a note taker, this might be good. You could write these down. If you're not, uh, I'll post these later on the city, which is kind of our uh, church-based uh, you know, communication tool. And so uh, online, I'll, I'll post these there. Um, but, if, but if you, uh, you want to kind of follow along, what we're going to do is kind of look at some of these summary statements. And then uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll look at a couple verses. And other, some of them will have to go fast, right? Sixteen chapters times two minutes, and we're out of time, right? So we've got to move a little bit. Uh, but we start in chapter one. And here's what we learned in chapter one, is that the gospel is the power of God, and everyone needs it. The gospel is the power of God, and everyone needs it. Look at verse 16. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. word gospel means news, right? It's not advice, it's not commands, it's not you ought to, it's here's what's happened. And Paul says there's good news And this good news, I am not ashamed of it. And he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking this good news. And he's going to help us see, even here in chapter 1, that everyone needs this. Why does everyone need the good news, the, the grace of Jesus that he's going to explain? Well, look at verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We all need good news because we're all under God's wrath. You go, well, that's not good news. No, it's not. But you need bad news before you can appreciate good news. Well, we're under God's wrath because we suppress the truth. What does that look like? Look down to verse 25. Because all of us, this is what we do, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We call that the great exchange, that we love created things more than we love the creator. And that begins to set the tone for what happens through the rest of uh, the early part of the book of Romans, where we're looking at sin. And we said this early on, that if sin were blue, we'd all be smurfs. Remember we said that? If sin were blue, we'd all be smurfs. We're not all as bad as we could be, but we're all as bad off as we could be, because all of us have made this exchange. Everyone needs the gospel. Then we got to chapter two, and Paul said, especially religious people. If you consider yourself religious, if you consider yourself part of a tradition, uh, specifically here he's talking about the Jews. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So this is the religious people who go, well, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not like that. Oh, not so fast. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice The very same things. We talked about the idea that each of us is sort of carrying around, we don't see it, but we're carrying around an invisible tape recorder. And God is hearing everything that we say, and God hears all of our thoughts. And especially for religious people, the idea could be that God at the judgment could say, you know what, I'm not even going to use my standard to judge you, I'm just going to use your own. Here, let me play back this tape for you. Just listen to all the things that you're against. And then I'm going to just go through your life and show you all the ways that you've contradicted it. So even religious people, maybe especially religious people, need the gospel. Then we get to chapter three. Seriously. Seriously. Everyone needs salvation, and Jesus came to give it. If you want to see how serious Paul is, look at chapter three, verse 10. He says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. He was on to describe this sort of full-bodied sin of their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Uh, verse 14 Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and, and misery. Verse 18 There's no fear of God before their eyes. We are filled with sin. None of us is righteous, no, not one. We all need the salvation that Jesus brings. And finally, we get to the good news. Go down to 323, where he says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means to be made right with God, to be declared righteous, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means a wrath absorber, right? Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, a a lamb would have to be killed, would have to be sacrificed to absorb God's wrath against sin. Jesus is that Lamb of God. And verse 25, God put him forward as a wrath absorber, a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. And there we get it. That because we have all this sin, God has stepped in. There's the good news. God has stepped in to solve this problem. God has stepped in to intervene. God has seen that we're far off from him. And instead, God has come near in the person of Jesus. And he sent Jesus to absorb God's wrath on our behalf as a substitute for our sin. As it said there, by grace as a gift. And that is a gift that cannot be earned, it cannot be worked for, it must be received. How is it received? Well, he said, in verse 25, by faith. By faith. By trusting in what Jesus has done. Not by saying, wow, that was great, I'll pay you back. Not by saying, boy, I really gotta, I gotta get myself cleaned up. No, but by trusting Christ by faith. And Paul goes in, in chapter 4, to really defend this. And he goes back to the first uh, person who who, uh, really the Jews would look to as a father, and that's Abraham. And and in chapter 4, Paul says this, Even Abraham was justified by faith alone. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Right? He says, Abraham didn't, didn't make himself right with God by, by works. Instead, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, some of you will recall this. When we got to this section on Abraham, we looked at this idea that we need to have righteousness if we're going to stand before God. Right? God doesn't just expect us to be uh, totally sinless. He also expects us to be perfectly righteous. Right? So we have kind of a double problem. Not only are we sinful, well, Jesus takes care of that, but we also need to be righteous. Well, Jesus takes care of that, too. Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. It's, it, we're counted as righteous because we trust in what he did. And Paul says that's even how it worked with Abraham. See, w- w- one of the things we saw here is that this righteousness that we have, it's not inherent righteousness. So how a lot of people think of it. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never done anything bad. You know, I'm, I'm basically good. Uh, let's go back to Romans 1 through 3. No, you're not. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. So it's not inherent righteousness, but we also said it's not infused righteousness. And infused righteousness is kind of the method of most religions. Infused righteousness, so uh, one, one way of thinking about this is it would be uh, that, that righteousness comes to you by grace through all that you can do. We talked about that, how that's kind of the the typical, traditional approach of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, you need God's grace, you need the grace of Jesus, but it happens to you through all of your works, through all of your effort, through keeping these various rules. We also said that this this righteousness we need isn't infused, uh, as some people would call it, like grace after all I've done. That's how the LDS tend to look at it. Yes, I need God's grace, but really, it's it's what I do. So, So we had there faith plus works. And we talked about that this is a righteousness that even for Abraham was never a faith plus anything, but it was faith alone. It's not inherent righteousness. It's not infused righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that comes from another and is credited to our account so that we stand before God And he says, ah, righteous. I I see you just as if you are my perfectly obedient son, Jesus. That's good news. That's really good news. In chapter 5, we saw this. That we're naturally born into Adam, uh, but then we're born again into Jesus. And so Paul sort of continues his theological discussion, and this gets pretty deep here, as Paul talks about that all of us come into the world in Adam, we receive and inherit the guilt and the sin of Adam, but that by faith we are born again into Jesus. The way that I described it back then, some of you will recall this, is the idea of a car cart. Right? You know when you go to the grocery store and there's the car cart, and your kid gets in and they're, you know, they're spinning the wheel, and they think they're driving, but you're really driving. Right? And they can turn all they want, but the reality is there's something else really driving what's going on. Well, that's how it is for everybody. And so we're born in the Adam cart. We think we're free, we think we're doing what we want, but the reality is that there is this force of inherited sin that drives us. So no matter how we spin it, how we turn it, in the end, we're headed towards selfishness, sin, and death. But that by grace, through faith, God gets us out of the Adam car cart and puts us into the Jesus car cart. Where again, we might think that we have a lot to do with this. We might think that you know I'm really taking steps and I'm really doing a lot. And the reality is no, it's all because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is pushing the cart. And he's taking it towards life and blessing and righteousness. We're born into Adam. But we're born again into Jesus. We're united to him. And that's really the idea that Paul picks up then in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. The idea here of chapter 6 is that faith unites us to Jesus Christ and frees us from sin. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. He says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. How do we get united? By faith, by trusting in Christ. We're moved into the, the Christ car cart. We're united to him. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Faith unites us to Jesus and frees us from sin. We're united to Christ by faith. This is why the Bible can use language like Christ is the, the husband and the church is the wife. It's talking about a union It's why Jesus can use language where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a picture of union. And for me, this was one of the richest things that I learned in this series, is digging deep into the reality that I don't just believe in Jesus, but because of faith, I'm in Jesus. And so then, the freedom to obey comes not from trying to be something I'm not, but to be who I actually am. So the process of Christian growth is the process of becoming who you already are as you're declared righteous in Christ. But that reality of, of faith, it sometimes seems too easy. It seems too good to be true. It kind of runs counter to how we think. And so we gotta, we gotta add some rules. We gotta add some effort. We gotta, I gotta contribute to this. This is too much on Jesus. I gotta help out. So that's what Paul picked up in chapter 7. His point of chapter 7 was that using rules to change your life doesn't work. Using rules to change your life doesn't work. And if you read this, you just see all the frustration of Paul. Uh, there's no discussion really in chapter 7 about the Spirit, about the Spirit trying to help him out as he relies on faith, but instead it's all about his effort as he relies on the rules, as he relies on the law. Here's what he says in Verse 21. to, to obey God and to, to be righteous by his rules. It leads me just to despair. I told the story uh, from the Iliad about the s- uh, sailors who were sailing and they were hearing the siren songs. And inevitably these uh, sailors would, would veer off and they would get shipwrecked. We talked about the difference between law and faith, between rules and the spirit. We said following the law is like what Odysseus did. Odysseus heard the siren sounds and so he tied up all of his men to the mast of the boat said, no matter what you can't steer it towards them and it just drove them crazy in the process on the other hand, Orpheus had a better idea, he played a more beautiful song and it drowned out the voice of the sirens, what we saw was that law is tying yourself up, don't do this it just drives you crazy but the gospel is a more beautiful song. It says you have Christ. Yeah, that's enough. So then we launched into everybody's favorite chapter of Romans, chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we learned that the Spirit brings freedom, adoption, and hope. Freedom we see in verse 1. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's freedom. You won't face the penalty of God's wrath anymore. Chapter 8, verse 15, we receive adoption. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're adopted into God's family. We are no longer slaves, but sons. We have all the rights, all the inheritance, of a son. And that inheritance is this hope. That inheritance is this thing that gives us anticipation and joy. And so we see in Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we saw down in chapter 8, verse 38, Paul said, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everyone said, Amen. 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 The Spirit of God brings freedom and adoption and hope. And we all would have just been happy to kind of end there. Oh, yeah, that's great. But Paul begins to think through He's writing to an audience that is uh, largely Jewish, also with some non-Jews, some Gentiles in there. And he realizes they're going to have a little bit of an objection because I've given all these sweeping promises. How is it that we can trust these sweeping promises if it seems like God has kind of bailed out on his promises to Israel? And so starting in chapter 9 and going through chapter 11, uh, we begin to kind of have this whole discussion about God's faithfulness. Can God really be trusted? Will God's promises come true? And so we see in chapter 9 that God's promises haven't failed. True Israel has been chosen by God. True Israel has been chosen by God. I remember one commentator when we got there said that if you fully understand Romans 9 through 11, you're fully prepared to join the Trinity, Right? And so there were some deep waters here and there was some complexity to that. And there were a lot of us asking really important and difficult and hard to pin down questions. But we did some work on it. And we saw that Paul says God's promises haven't failed. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed... Verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in ways that we don't understand fully, we saw that God is sovereign over salvation, that God keeps his promises that true Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic people, and that that is a remnant that's been chosen by God's sheer grace. We don't know exactly what to do with that. And some of us, after we heard that, we're kind of wrestling with that and going, well, gosh, if, if, if salvation's up to God and he's sovereign over it, what's the role of, of human choice, of human decision? Should I share the gospel with anybody anyway? And that's where I just love that Paul came right back in chapter 10, and here was the theme of chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? You go, I don't get it. Well, God's in charge. Yeah, but call on the name of the Lord. So he says in chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're hearing this good news, if you're hearing that the Spirit through Jesus could come into your life and bring freedom and adoption and hope, and, and deal with your sin problems so that not only would you live forever with Jesus, but that you would begin living with Jesus now. If you hear that and you go, I like that, you don't have to kind of get to- messed up in some kind of, well, am I, am I really chosen for this? Or You just go, I'm, I'm going to call in the name of the Lord. I, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I trust you. You're saved. And then uh, Paul comes back in uh, chapter 11, and he really starts to talk about, okay, well, we know that that true Israel is a a spiritual, not an ethnic people, but what about the ethnic people? What about the ethnic Jews? What about that? Is there a plan for them? And so in chapter 11, we learn that God has a future plan to bring Jews to faith in Jesus. In a sense, the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom of God to make the Jews jealous, it says there. And they're there to look at the life of the, of the Christians, many of whom are not Jewish. And the Jews are supposed to, to look at that in such a way where they go, wow, that's incredible. I want the relationship with God that, that they have. And yet the time will come when God will bring many uh, Jews into the kingdom and they will be saved as, with Jesus as their Messiah. Chapter 11 kind of concludes the the theologically kind of rich uh, section that, that many people think about when it comes to the book of Romans. And it concludes with this. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Some of us would have been happy to let it end there. Oh, yeah, that's good. But chapter 12 starts the so what. So what? What difference does this make? How does this change the way I live? And so when we got to chapter 12, we, we slowed down quite a bit. And here was the theme of chapter 12 is that worshiping God happens through selflessly loving people. That because of all of this grace that we've seen, we're to respond to God with worship, which means surrendering our lives to him and loving other people. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, every day, I want you to get on the altar and stay there. Not to try to atone for your sins, Jesus already did that, but to offer yourself and say, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. The problem, however, with living sacrifices is that we keep crawling off the altar And and he calls us to stay there, not by conforming to the world, but by being transformed through a renewing of our mind. And that renewing of our mind, what we said, and we spent uh, quite a few months on this actually, the renewing of our minds and the the life of worship is a life of selfless love. We went kind of verse by verse by verse looking at that, that if all of life is all for Jesus, if we're commanded to love God with everything, that follows that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That love, even, we see in chapter 13, extends to submitting to government. That Christians who love submit to government and pursue holiness. I don't know if you remember the kind of train of thought. It was the idea of, well, love God, uh, love one another, your fellow Christians, love outsiders, love enemies, and respect government. <laughs> right? It's like, after your enemies is the government, right? and you need to respect even them. And Paul says Christians who love, they submit to government. They follow the authority that God has established in the world. And they pursue holiness. He said in verse 8, he said, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In chapter 14, Uh, Josh Watt led us through a whole discussion about freedom and preferences, and we learned in chapter 14 that we don't agree on everything, but love trumps our preferences. Look at chapter 14, verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. We have things that we disagree on. We have things that aren't exactly black and white and commanded by the scriptures. Paul gives a number of examples in here. What we eat, what days we consider important. We could think of all kinds of things. And we're allowed to have differences about that. We should have convictions about it, but we are allowed to have differences, but but love trumps our personal preferences. If I have the choice between doing what I want and hurting my brother or sister in Christ, I choose to love my brother and sister in Christ and avoid what I want. That was the point of chapter 14. And then we get to chapter 15, and Paul comes back. He's starting to close this. He's starting to help us see kind of the big picture, and he tells us in chapter 15 that the gospel of grace is not just for Jews. It's for the whole world, which is why Paul spent his life going around telling Gentiles, telling the nations about Jesus. We see in chapter 15, he quotes from Isaiah. He says, the root of Jesse will come, a prediction about Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Many of those Gentiles and those Jews had been saved and had come together. We saw in chapter 16 this reality that the church is a beautiful display of unity and diversity. It's filled with Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, powerful and powerless, this beautiful diversity and this unity that's so important that if people come in like uh, wolves dressed as sheep and they begin to teach things contrary to what Paul has said, that that unity needs to be protected. The church is a beautiful display of unity and diversity. So there it is, Romans 1 through 16. I think that was less than a half hour, actually. We did it. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, so I, I just want to cl- close with, uh, with this. My two biggest lessons, and I'll, I'll be brief because I kind of just talked about them some. Uh, but, but for me, I reflect on this. One of the questions in your program that we'd love to have you talk about in your redemption communities this week or to, to discuss maybe over lunch or around the table with your family, one of the questions is something along the lines of what are the biggest things you've learned through the book of Romans? So I was reflecting on that question. And the first one is that union with Christ changes everything. The idea that I can be united to Christ by faith, it's a game changer. The freedom that comes with that. The confidence to pray that comes with that. The confidence that all of God's promises are true for me because I'm not kind of cast off, but I've been brought in, I'm united to Christ. That's a game changer. And then the second was really the focus on love. I knew that uh, God called us to obey him as a response to his grace to us. But I don't think I fully understood until going through this and teaching this. One of the blessings of teaching is you have to learn some stuff before you teach it. And and I don't think I fully understood that, that when God sees obedience, when God sees spiritual maturity, he measures it not with our knowledge, but with our love a big deal. God has loved us. The whole first part of Romans is saying, you're loved by God. And so we respond by loving him, by loving our families, by loving our neighbors, by loving our church. We respond with love. So you get all of that, and it makes sense why Paul would finish this way. Let me read this, and then we'll pray. Verse 25 of chapter 16. Father in heaven, thank you for these great and precious promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you that every word of it's true. God, I thank you especially for how relevant uh, these lessons have been. But I think if we had tried to teach a topical sermon series through all of these things, I'm not sure we would have hit as many relevant issues as we hit just by going through this book. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for how your word shapes us and molds us. God, I pray that we would embrace the reality that by faith we can be united to Christ and that it would lead us to sacrificially love one another. We pray that in Jesus' great name, amen.